Morena to the Fano down in Hastings. It's a beautiful day today. It is December the 1st, and you should all know what happens on December the 1st. The Christmas trees go up. Young household, that's the day. Not tomorrow, the question was put to me. Doesn't happen on the 2nd of December because the 2nd of December is not the 1st of December. It's a great day. I had a more difficult day a uh, couple of weeks back because I went to a business breakfast. I'm an accountant, for those of you who don't know me. Went to a business breakfast that accountants turn up to and had a gentleman there by the name of Dr. Tom. Some of you might have heard of Dr. Tom. He's got his own TV program. And being a medical man, he's talking to us about factors that affect our longevity. And he broke the news to us that half of us won't make it to 80. And then he, he said, look, what we'll do is just help you sort out who's likely to be in which half. He said, uh, I want you to stand up and I'm going to give you a quiz. And obviously, you know, people would gradually sit down with unhealthy answers and the survivors would stay standing up. So what he said to us is, I'm going to give you a quiz. What all the men heard with their peacock brains was, I'm going to give you a competition. <laughs> so you don't stand up like this. That's how you stand up, you know. And I'm looking around. I can just see the fear written all over the faces of some of my more portly colleagues. I'm feeling pretty good. I can see some pukus being tucked in. I'm thinking to myself, tuck it in, buddy. It's going to be a long quiz. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> I'm feeling pretty good, waiting for the barrage of questions. First question in the competition, <clears throat> do you snore? What the hey? Who doesn't snore? I just snore, a, I just snore a little bit. But I'm honest, and I'm, I'm like looking at my chair, and there's heaps of people, they're not sitting down, I'm thinking they're liars. I look at my chair, and honestly, I'm just like, had he seen me up eating like the bacon and the, the sausages, supporting the pork industry in the morning? You know, where does, where does a stupid question like, where does, do you snore? And he's trying to explain it with things like, it's a sign of respiratory issues. Should have had Dr. Brin there, shouldn't we? He wouldn't have asked a stupid question like that. So, you know, so I sit down, I'm thinking to myself, where are the real questions, buddy? You know, do you eat healthy fruit and cereal every day of the week? <laughs> Hello, yeah, seven hours sleep a night. Lock it in, Eddie, eight or nine. Seriously, I need it, you know. Put, do you get your little shorts on and shuffle around the block a couple of times? Hello, I'm your man, Dr. Tom, but no. So here I'm sitting here looking at the anemic little accountants around me, you know, <laughs> probably ready to rush off back to their offices and extend their spreadsheets for their, gro their forecast for their groceries out to 90 years old. So I'm not bitter, you know. Therapy is actually going really well, so my point is, yeah, not the best day like the 1st of December. However, <clears throat> you're wondering where I'm heading with this story. There is a point, there is a point. The point of the story is I go away from something like that and without being overly morbid, causing us to think about death, as Dr. Tom so helpfully did, does ask, cause us to ask some of the bigger questions in life. And that can actually be a really good thing for us. Some of them are things like this. What actually does happen to us when we die? Where do we go? We kind of tend to think there's 
two directions we can go, and we, there's one direction we do want to go. How do we know that we are going to heaven? How can anyone actually have certainty? And I don't think it's just questions about what's on the other side of death that are put into our minds when we think about death. It's actually questions about what's, what's the story this side of death as well. And they're important questions that we so often don't really address, particularly as Kiwis. How do we come to be? What are we actually here for? Why are we here? Is there any ultimate purpose? And these can be quite scary questions for us. They're pretty big. We don't often introduce ourselves at barbecues with this type of conversation starter. But they're really important. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at a passage out of the Bible that helps us answer some of these really big and really important questions. It's a passage out of one of the books of the Bible that we happen to have been studying through. So for those of you who have been with us through the year, we're going to look at a passage out of the very end of the Gospel of John. And when I say the Gospel of John, for those of you who may not be that familiar with the Bible, most of the records that we have about Jesus Christ, the historical records, come from four biographies about Jesus. And we call them Gospels because Gospel means good news. It's like when Christians share the message about Jesus, they talk about sharing the Gospel because we think it's such good news. And so there are four Gospels it means good news, and these four Gospels are individually known by the guy who wrote them. So Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, there's Luke and there's John. And this year we've been working through the Gospel, the biography that John wrote explaining about Jesus' life. And when we get to the end of John's Gospel, we read a really interesting passage, and the reason I think it's so fascinating, particularly for us, is that it addresses those really big questions. And I'll put it up there, but I'm going to read it straight from the Bible. This is, this is what John says in chapter 20 of his book. Chapter 20 and verse 21. Sorry, no. 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And we call this the kind of purpose statement of John's gospel. He says, that these things that I've written, there's heaps of other signs that Jesus did. Because he's been through Jesus' life, he's focused a lot on his ministry, the miracles that he did, the things that he taught, which were just mind-blowing. He's just spent chapters talking about Jesus' death. And in this chapter that we're looking at now, he's just said that Jesus rose from the dead. His tomb is empty. He's just appeared to all of the disciples. He's shown them evidence that it really is him. And he says, look, there's actually heaps of other signs I could tell you about, but these signs I'm telling you about for a reason, so that you would know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So what I want to do is unpack this, because John would spend the rest of his life teaching exactly this, to the point where he was imprisoned for teaching this. History says that the rest of the disciples died for teaching what John is saying. So this is clearly important. And something you're prepared to die for when you know whether it's true or not, because you're an eyewitness, and these were eyewitnesses, this is pretty important. 
being prepared to die for your teaching is a pretty high-level test of the authenticity of your belief in what you're teaching. So let's, let's unpack it. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. One of the things that stands out so much about Jesus that makes him clearly the most important, famous, influential, powerful person of all human history by a long margin is the fact that he lived such a miraculous life, unparalleled miraculous life. The things he did are just phenomenal that go hand in hand with his amazing teaching. But his miraculous life just causes him to stand out to the point of weirdness because the type of life that we believe Jesus lived, we don't see around us today. And I remember as a younger man, not from a church family at all, I never darkened the door of a Sunday school classroom in my life. But when I was about 18 years old, working on an orchard, I asked an older, mature, wise lady, what did she think about this? Jesus is so famous, and there's all these stories about him. How do you explain that if, if he's not the real deal? And she said that she hadn't really given it a lot of thought, but, but when she thought about it, she said, well, it would make sense that if he had sort of an advanced medical knowledge, that in a day when people weren't, you know, very advanced in their own medical knowledge, what he did might actually be taken as miraculous. And it probably wouldn't take very much to do that. And then they tell their friends and the story snowballs and then you're in 2000 and whatever and you have a miraculous Jesus. And at the time, I thought to myself, well, that kind of makes sense. Stories grow. The problem with the advanced medical knowledge theory is that it runs into a complete brick wall as soon as you actually start looking at the actual records we have about Jesus And we have a lot of them. And he is the most well-documented figure in ancient history. And the first problem we have is that an advanced medical knowledge just doesn't fit with the, the healings that he did. If we look at what John talks about in his gospel alone, it starts off early in the gospel with Jesus healing a boy who was on the verge of death. And he didn't even touch the boy. He did it remotely. The boy's father came to him and said, would you heal my son? He's about to die. Jesus just said, go, he's fine. And at that time, the boy was healed. Jesus healed a man who had been crippled for 35 years instantly. A man who'd been blind from birth. He raised Lazarus from the dead when Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. This is not just advanced medical knowledge. These are very difficult things to do even today. In the other Gospels, apart from John's Gospel, we read about other healings that Jesus did. People with leprosy, people who were paralyzed, a woman who'd bled for 12 years. He gave sight to the blind, hearing to the mute, Uh, Sorry, speech to the mute, hearing to the deaf, on three different occasions, Jesus publicly raised people from the dead. These were not done in secret. They were witnessed by crowds of people. This is not the sort of stuff that we do today, let alone in Jesus' day, with a bit of advanced medical knowledge. This is the first major problem there, particularly given the fact that Luke, who wrote one of these gospels, these biographies about Jesus, Luke was a doctor. He was a man with advanced medical knowledge, and he says what Jesus has done is miraculous. 
So there's the first problem. The healings alone rule out the kind of advanced medical knowledge theory. But in addition to that, there were non-healing miracles that Jesus did. He publicly turned water into wine. He walked on water, multiplied bread and fish to feed thousands of people, instantly calmed a storm again publicly in front of all of his disciples, rose from his own grave and appeared to 500 people demonstrating what had happened. It's a very difficult thing to fake, no matter how advanced your medical knowledge is. So the idea that Jesus' miracles can be explained because he was just a bit more, a bit smarter than the ignorant people around him just runs into a brick wall when we actually look at the records we do have about Jesus. He was far, far more than that. John says as well, this is just a snapshot. This is just some of the things. There are many other signs that Jesus did. And that's why we regard him as so miraculous. But John goes on from there, and he says, but but these are written, there's a purpose for this, that you may believe. The purpose of the miracles was not just to establish Jesus as a miracle worker. It's not like it's just his, his miracles were done as a kind of divine circus act to entertain. They were done as divine evidence to convince that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. So what does John mean by that? Well, Messiah was a Hebrew idea. that The Jewish people, the Hebrew people, had looked forward for the 1,500 years of their existence towards a promised one, a chosen one, an anointed one, who would come and save them, who would protect them and lead them. And so that's why today when we talk about a messianic figure, it's a chosen one, an anointed one. And the Greek word for this, Greek is is the language that the records about Jesus were recorded in. The Greek word for Messiah is Christos, from which we get the word Christ. He was the chosen one, the promised one who would come and save his people. So many of the prophecies about him as well were that this Messiah figure would be divine, hence the idea of him being the son of God. And just to be clear, this wasn't something that Jesus' followers invented a few years later and the story grew. This was, Jesus accepted these titles. If we look at uh, John chapter 10, earlier on in the book that we've been looking at, Jesus is confronted by some of the Jewish religious leaders and they're having a crack at him about this very thing. And they say, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you don't believe. The works... The miracles, the signs I do in my Father's name, they testify, excuse me, they testify about me. But you don't believe. I and the Father, God, are one. And we might miss it. We might miss the nuance of what he's saying there. His Jewish hearers didn't miss this at all. His Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. Because that's the punishment for blasphemy. That's what you do when someone claims to be God. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus replied, why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I'm God's son. Don't believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, these these works, these signs, these miracles, even though you don't believe me, believe the works. 
that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. They still don't get it. Again, they try to seize him. So this is not, these are not titles that were foisted on Jesus. These are things that Jesus taught himself about who he was. Unparalleled claims. But the claims by themselves, if I made these claims, you would think I was just a wacko. But someone who does the things, lives the life that Jesus did, hand in hand with these claims, is someone who needs to be taken very seriously. And that's exactly what John is wanting. He's saying the miracles are not a circus show to entertain. They are divine evidence to convince that you may believe that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Son of God. What's so important about that? John goes on and he says that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is where it gets really important. This is where we start to answer those big questions we looked at at the start of my message. A couple of things here. The first thing to understand is that this passage we're looking at is a really condensed snapshot of things that John's been teaching all the way through his gospel. And so a couple of concepts we need to just really make sure we understand. The first one is when he talks about life, he's not just talking about having a long, healthy life. He's not just saying, do this and you make it to 90 and you go on boat cruises with accountants. It's much more than that. When he talks about life, he's not just talking about life even this side of the grave. He's talking about eternal life. Because through his gospel, that's the way he phrases this. If we look back at John chapter 5, John's quoted Jesus, saying, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. In John chapter 10, Jesus is describing himself as the good shepherd, referring to his followers as sheep. And he says, My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. In what's probably the most famous verse of the Bible, many of you are likely to be familiar with it. John 3.16. Jesus again says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And when John's talking about eternal life, he's not even just talking about the length. He's not just talking about quantity. He's talking about quality. Because in John 17, he says, this is eternal life. This is Jesus praying. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, God. It's a quality thing. It's life that lives out what we were created to be in relationship with God that happens to go forever. So Christianity, when we talk about it like this, is not just a matter of a good life that gets you to a certain place. It's a matter of life that's lived out, enjoying a relationship with your creator, so that when you happen to die in your earthly body, you go to a good person. You go to God, who you have walked with through your life. That's what John's meaning when he talks about life. It's this eternal life, this richness of quality and quantity. The second thing to understand, though, if you look at how John 3.16 puts it here, you'll see that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, 
believes in. And that's different to believing that. You can believe that something is true and it is purely an intellectual acknowledgement of certain facts. But believing in something, there's more to believing in. There's, there's a wholeheartedness about that. There's a trust. There's an entrusting. And that's why when the Bible talks about this, it uses words like faith and trust. To illustrate the difference, I heard a, a really powerful story. I read, read a really powerful story about a police incident that happened a few years ago where a young Uh, Los Angeles police officer by the name of Mark Walker is on patrol and he sees a car swerving all over the road. And so he pulls the guy over and asks him to exit the vehicle. What Mark Walker did not know is that the driver of the vehicle, Jacob Stevens, had recently been released from prison. He was on parole for assault and he happened to be holding in the waistband of his pants a loaded Colt 45 pistol. For those of you unfamiliar with Colt 45 pistols, that's, that's a serious bullet. You don't buy Colt 45s at Toy World. This is a serious weapon held in the hands of a man who had no intention of going back to prison, knowing full well that on parole, holding an unlicensed weapon, getting arrested for drunk driving, he wasn't going to negotiate his way out of this. So Mark Walker, the officer not knowing any of this, is surprised, when all of a sudden he finds the Colt 45 pointed at his chest. He knows that he has his own uh, pistol in his holster. He knows, though, that, he has, that his assailant has the drop on him. He would be shot before he can pull it out. He knows that he's wearing a bulletproof vest. And he's trained in this. He's been trained about the bulletproof vests. He's seen what they call live fire tests where they shoot one of these things and, and say to the, the, the officers, look, the bullet did not go through. He knows that in theory it's meant to stop at point blank range a bullet as well. But that night he's got to take his belief that the bulletproof vest will stop the bullet and he's got to go from believing that to believing in because his life is on the line. Now, the fact that I'm telling you the story illustrates the fact that he survived. He was shot in the chest, and the bulletproof vest did exactly what it was meant to do. But you understand what I'm saying. There's a really big difference between believing that and believing in. He entrusted himself to his bulletproof vest that night. He put his faith in his bulletproof vest. He didn't just believe, he believed in his bulletproof vest. We are not just called to believe that Jesus existed, said incredible things, did unparalleled miracles. John and the other disciples, the followers of Jesus, the the guys who, who spent their lives teaching about him, call us to believe in Jesus, to entrust ourselves to him, to put our faith in him. That is what it means to be a Christian. Some of you... I imagine maybe saying to yourself, and it's a very fair question, why do I need to entrust myself to Jesus? I don't need to be saved. And I grew up with exactly that mindset. The interesting thing, though, is that most of the world wouldn't ask that question. 
Most of the world adheres to a, some form of religious belief that is trying to bridge the gap between them and God. What makes Christianity so different is that although we start from the same premise that there is a gap there, we say that God has come to us. We haven't climbed to God. We start, though, with the same premise, and it's really important for us to understand we do need to be saved. The Bible is really clear on this. If we look at what Romans chapter 3 teaches, so this is the Apostle Paul, he says that no one is righteous, not even one. Everyone has sinned, has done wrong, and we all, as a result of that, fall short of God's glorious standard. The prophet Isaiah says we all, we're all in the same boat here, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And so we start off with the same problem as what most of the rest of the world recognises. If we are brutally honest and we stop and in our most lucid moments, we listen to our consciences, we recognise that I, Steve Young, I don't do things that I should do. And there are things that I do do that I shouldn't really do. And I know that I drop the ball. I hurt people around me. I just have, I can look at myself, but even before I get onto my thoughts, I'm far from a perfect man. And that's just on the horizontal. That's how I treat you guys. That's how I treat my family, my work colleagues. That's far before I start examining how have I responded to God, who's my creator, who made me, and who I owe my entire existence to. I am guilty before him. That's a really scary thought. That's probably the scariest thought you will ever hear. The good news is that although there is punishment that needs to be meted out for that, the punishment in this case, the Bible says, is separation from God. He doesn't put us in a cage and poke us with sticks. He says, you don't want anything to do with me? I'll grant that wish. So C.S. Lewis puts it brilliantly. He says there's two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will, your will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. If you choose to live your life ignoring God, God gives us free will. And at the end of our lives, he will say, you don't want to be with me? That's fine. I'm going to let you have your way. But it's not what we were created to be. It's not where we were created to be. And again, the good news is that although all of the world's religions, other than Christianity, will give us steps to climb, a ladder, rules to follow, rituals to, to take part in, so that we can work our way to God. Christianity is really different. Because just like we read, this, this is what John wants us to understand. Christianity is about God coming down to us and bridging that gap. It's not a gap that we bridge, it's a gap that he bridges. And this is exactly what the cross is about. So every Easter we stop in New Zealand and we celebrate the death of Jesus. Buddhists don't stop and celebrate the death of Buddha. Muslims don't stop and celebrate the death of Muhammad, but we celebrate the death of Jesus. Because in doing that, what he did is he, he said, you guys are guilty before God. There is a punishment under perfect justice that needs to be given out, but I will take that punishment on myself. And that's what the cross was about. 
prophet Isaiah described it like this, talking about the Messiah. He said, he was wounded and crushed because of our sins. By taking our punishment, he made us completely well. All of us were like sheep that had wandered off. We had each gone our own way, but the Lord gave him the punishment we deserved. So again, unlike every other religious view, God and Christianity comes to us. So important. Because I think that the view of God outside of the church, for people unfamiliar with the Bible, who just have perhaps a, a media snapshot of what Christianity is about, probably see God as a curmudgeonly old rule maker, a piano teacher with a ruler ready to whack you on the knuckles and spoil all of your fun. And yet when you look at the Bible, again, the actual records we have that describe the way God's worked through history, that give us pictures of what he's like, the pictures are so far from the piano teacher with the ruler. Think about the pictures that God is, 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 that are used to describe God. A shepherd who will leave his whole flock just to run and chase after one lost sheep because his love is so great for every one of his children. The young bridegroom who is just so enamored with his bride, so in love with her, that he travels to, to reach her, to bring her back to himself. The husband who is so faithful to his wife, even when she is unfaithful and has multiple lovers, and he forgives her and welcomes her back. The father who is betrayed and, and, and cast aside and spurned, who waits at the gate and then runs to the wayward child. These are the pictures that the Bible uses to describe what God is really like. And that's what John is trying to say to us. Trying to say, guys, you just have to get this. The real picture of what God is like is this mind-blowing, miraculous God who teaches amazing things, but he came to us for the purpose of bringing us back to himself. He didn't come to give us a list of rules or a ladder. He came to take our punishment, and all we have to do is accept that incredible gift. That's the summation. That's why John is saying here, don't you see it? This is the purpose of the miracles. The purpose is that you would believe who Jesus is, and by believing in him, you would have eternal life. I boil this down. If you forget everything else I've said today, just one thing for you to remember. That Jesus' miracles prove he is the God who seeks and saves us. That's the purpose of his miraculous life. That's the purpose of the signs, the miracles, is to prove he is really the God who seeks and saves us. And all we have to do is entrust ourselves to him. You want to have eternal life? You want to answer those questions that we looked at to know, what does it take to live beyond death? What does it take to live the life you were created for? What is the purpose? This is saying that you are made. You are not some random cosmic accident. You are loved. You are created by a being who loves, who is intelligent, who is moral, who longs to have you as his child. And all we have to do is entrust ourselves to him, accept the gift that he offers. 
This may be very new to some of you. And some of you maybe, I'm hoping, are thinking, I love the sound of that. Because like I said at the start, I just don't think there is anything bigger that I could tell you. I honestly don't think I could give you any better news. I could stand up and announce the end to cancer, and I'm not belittling cancer, but that is not as big as what we're talking about. I could cure world hunger. That's not as big as what we're talking about here. This is eternity that we're talking about here. What I want to do now is just, if you feel, the call, if you feel called to respond to this, you think, I love the sound of that, I would happily entrust myself to Jesus. I'm going to put this prayer up and I'm just going to say it soon. And I would just love you if you would love to respond to this. You don't have to stand up, you don't have to say it out loud, just in the quiet of your heart. Would you just pray this with me? As I say it, and and this is just an example of entrusting yourself to Jesus. So let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you gave me life, but I don't live for you as I should. I've turned my back on you and I've lived for myself. Thank you for taking my punishment on the cross. Thank you for your promise of eternal life with you. Please forgive me and help me to live with you. I entrust myself to you. And I just ask that uh, if you did pray that just now, we don't want to put any pressure on you at all, but would you please just let someone know, someone you came with. Uh, I'm going to be up the front. I'd, be, I'd love to hear if you've done that. I expect, like I did when I first became a Christian, when I first entrusted myself to Jesus, you will have questions, and you will have good questions. We'd love to talk to you about those. So please let someone know anyway. I'm going to pray now for all of us, but for people who have made that decision in particular, the band's going to come up just as I'm praying. So let's uh, pray together. Lord Jesus, we do want to stop and just want to acknowledge just who you are. You who live the most unmatched, unparalleled life of miracles and power but of beauty and brilliance as well. You are just so infinitely above us. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are God come to us as a human being to save us. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful. Thank you for saving me. I just want to pray for anyone who has understood and responded and believed in you this morning, who's entrusted themselves to you. Would you please... Uh, help them now as they start walking with you. Help them to understand just who you are, what you've done for them, the, the ramifications of this amazing, eternity-changing changing decision they've made. Would you protect them? Uh, help us as a church family to nurture them. We want to put them in your hands. We want to put ourselves as a church family in your hands. Help us to be sharers of your news, reflectors of your love just always remembering that there is just nothing bigger than this and there is no better news. Would you please use us to help people understand and respond? Amen.